1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, I know we're studying in 2 Thessalonians. We're going to wrap up 2 Thessalonians this week, but uh, we wanted to go to 1 Thessalonians 4 very quickly. And if we could, just to refresh our memory, uh, if we could put the maps up there on the screens. Okay, this is going to be big fun for me, because this day, what do you think of that, huh? Ooh. (laughs) No more flannel graphs for us. Okay, now... If you're not familiar with the geography of the Middle East way back when, over here is Jerusalem. Everybody see? By the way, um, we, the, the AV team decided to get this because each week I point to the, to the, um, to the screens and uh, they felt that I needed to have this. So they, so they got this one here and it has kind of a, a nice green thing to it. We appreciate those of you who have offered to take the laser off of your handguns and let me use that. <laughs> However... Uh, some of the elders felt that it would not be appropriate for me to have. And some of you said, don't even take it off. Just hold the gun and just point it. <laughs> but but uh, we're going we're gonna to use this. But thank you so much for your offer. So you have over here, you have Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, of course, is in Israel. And then if you go up and out of Israel, you come up to that, that town called Antioch. And that's in Syria. Syria and Antioch, your Bible will, will uh, refer to that. And that's where Paul is launching his ministry. Paul goes on from, from outside of Israel there in Syria. He goes on a missionary trip. He heads up this area in Galatia, and uh, ultimately the Holy Spirit leads him to come over here to this area of Macedonia. And uh, so if we can go to the next map, the next map, and so you'll remember that Paul comes all the way over here from Asia and uh, gets on a boat and heads up to this town of Philippi. Now it's in Philippi where as he begins to share the gospel, he receives what's called a Roman beating. Now in that Roman beating, that would be to the point you're beaten to the point where they, they figured out what would kill you and they back it off just a notch. This would be the beating that would leave him permanently disfigured. So when Paul says, I bear on my body the brand marks of Christ, he's not kidding. He's, he's forever disfigured by what takes place at Philippi. And so they realize they need to get him out of town very quickly, and so he heads down two days' journey to this town of Thessalonica. He's ultimately going to make his way all the way down to Corinth, stopping along the way. And when he gets in Corinth, he's going to write back to Thessalonica. Now, he is in Thessalonica for three weeks, and then once again, persecution begins. They realize they need to get him out of town because his body is still healing. He would be scabbed. He would be still possibly bleeding. There would still be some open wounds. And now that that persecution is beginning again, the believers there in the town realize we need to get Paul out of town because he will not survive if this thing happens again. So Paul makes his way down to Corinth, down in the bottom of the map, and he's there for a few months. When the, the Thessalonican church is about six months old, he finds out what's going on there, and he writes 1 Thessalonians back. Now, 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to wrap up 2 Thessalonians today, but 1 Thessalonians was written to clarify some things and to write a letter of encouragement. I've asked you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and in verse 17, Paul talks about this event that's commonly referred to as the rapture of the church. And he says in verse 17, he says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. We shall always be with the Lord. He says we'll be caught up. And many of you know that that Greek word is harpazo, but the Bible is translated in the Latin. The Latin word there is rapturo. And so, so it's translated, we just say rapture from the Latin translation. So we refer to this as the rapture of the church, but he says those of us who are alive and remain, he is referring to that last generation when Jesus comes back. Now it was because of that, the, when 
the Thessalonians read that letter, they believed that Paul's talking about those of us who are alive and remain, that he was probably speaking about them. So they were expecting that Jesus was going to come back very, very soon. Well, it's a few months later as we come to 2 Thessalonians and go to chapter 1. A few months later, Paul gets word of what's going on, and he hears that the church in Thessalonica is now going through very, very intense persecution. There in uh, first, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes, and he says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions, which you endure, which you endure. And you'll recall that we talked in previous studies that it was there in Thessalonica where the first Christians were crucified for their faith. It was the first time where the Romans began to persecute Christians uh, because they, they would not also worship Caesar. And so Christians are being put to death, and it's a very difficult time. People are losing their jobs, their homes, and it just it's a very intense time of persecution. Now, because of that, the church goes into what we might call a major panic, and they believe that maybe this persecution is that time period called the tribulation or the day of the Lord, and they think that somehow they missed this event that Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the rapture, and and they're a little freaked out about that. So in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul has to write them, And he says in verses 1 and 2, he says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that that event called the rapture, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And we talked about that last time. But apparently there was a letter being circulated around. Supposedly it was written by Paul. It's not. It's a forgery. But, but it had, had arrived in Thessalonica. And also there was this prophecy that this church had missed that, that rapture and they were now in the day of the Lord. And so they're concerned that, that the day of the Lord has come. And so Paul writes back, and he, he, uh, he writes back to, to calm them down. Now, what, what's also interesting, for those of you who've been around the Bible and, and been around end-time study for any length of time, there's a couple of camps, and one camp is called post-trib rapture people. How many of you ever heard of post-trib? Okay, the three of us. And, and that view holds that you go through the tribulation and then you're raptured up. That's when Jesus comes and takes you up. Now, if they believe that, if they were taught that, then they would be excited because they know that they're in the midst of it. They haven't missed anything. It comes at the end and then they're taken up. They're freaked out because that's not what they were taught. And, and if they were taught, and there's another group that's called the mid-trib group. How many of you have heard of that? Mid-trib, where Jesus comes back for the church in the middle part of the tribulation and takes them up. Well, again, if they were mid-trib taught, then they would be excited about what they're going through because they'd be saying, hey, we are right around the corner. I mean, if this is the tribulation, it's right there. The reason that they are so freaked out is because they think that they are in the tribulation that the Bible talks a great deal about, and, and Paul had taught them that they would be removed before that event took place. And so Paul has to write to them and, and calm them down and say, don't, don't be disturbed yet thinking that the day of the Lord has come. We'll talk about that as we go. So someone had apparently come along and said that you guys as a church, you've missed it. Now you're in this day of the Lord. And in verse two, he says that you not be uh, quickly shaken from your composure. 
Paul goes on to say, now, this day of the Lord cannot happen yet because of two things. One, we're still here. And two, that guy that's commonly referred to as the Antichrist, he has not appeared. We looked at that two weeks ago when we studied the first part of this chapter. So 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are called the eschatological or the end times epistles in the Bible, in the New Testament. And here, Paul has dealt with this great end times event, the day of the Lord. We looked at that two weeks ago. And now Paul is going to go from the prophecy of that and all that's going to take place to how do you and I live out this faith in what is this time period called the the last days? How do we respond and what do we do? Uh, It it hasn't happened yet, so how do we respond and how do we live? And that's what we're going to find today. So we're going to pick it up in verse 12 of chapter 2. Once again, let me just tell you that there's a lot more than what we can talk about today. The big question from each week is what do you leave in, what do you leave out? And um, it's... uh, Sometimes it just kills me to not be able to just spend a great deal of time talking about certain things. But I want to give you enough that you get the flow of it and uh, point out a few things, but we'll keep it going. Okay? Okay, good. You're learning. All right. So verse 12... Verse 12 ends the, the first part of the, of the chapter when Paul's talking about this end times uh, events and he says, in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And he's talking about that time period and we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. But now to this church that feels that they've missed it and, and feels that they've been abandoned by God, Paul says this, and I want you to underline a couple of things in verses 13 and 14. Uh, They're going through a very intense time. They thought they missed it, but then Paul says, don't be uh, easily moved from your position. But he says, but, but, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren. I want you to underline brethren. And then he says, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen from the beginning, chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that he called you through our gospel that he may, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus. Now there, there's a few things in this, as he says, we, we've just talked about all of that and you're freaked out, and you think, you're thinking that you've missed it. He says, but, but I want you to know a couple of things. And he, he had you underline those. He, he, first of all, he calls them brethren. They think that there's something wrong in their relationship with God because they're going through a very intense time where there's persecution. Paul reminds them, no, you, you're, you're brethren. And then he says, we give thanks to God for you. Why, why does he say that? Because they're the example of what it means to go through a difficult time and walk with the Lord. You haven't missed it. You're the example of what it means. Then he says that God, that you are loved by God. Now, I love that because um, for me, when I go through difficult times, my first response, even though I know it's theologically incorrect, but my first response is to think that somehow I've made God mad, that uh, God doesn't love me. And I know it's a lie. I know it's a lie. But, and I know theologically that that's not true but it's my first response, and that's what they're feeling. God, there must be something wrong with me because, and he says, no, I want you to know, you're going through a difficult time, but you're loved by God. And then he says, not only are you loved by God, but God chose you. God chose you. You didn't think this up. God God chose you and brought you to this place of relationship with him. 
And he says, and you've been set apart. Your Bible and my Bible says sanctified. The idea is that God has set them apart for a very special, very special use. And that God called them. Again, he didn't, he didn't think, uh, they didn't think this up. And then he says in verse 14, for a glory, uh, to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea is that there's a very special future for them. I know that there's a big sermon in those two verses, but I'm going to move on. I just wanted to give you enough to kind of highlight that. But then in verse 14, uh, verse 15, he says, now, because of all that, all that difficulty that you're facing, uh, you're in the last days, and uh, based upon everything that I've said so far, here's what I want you to do. Verse 15, he says, so then. Now, how many of your Bibles say so then? Okay, you underline that. And then how many of your Bibles say therefore? Okay, you underline that. Now, when you get a so then or a therefore, it means based upon everything that we've said up to this point, here's what the conclusion is. And he's going to say, this is what you're to do. This is what you're to do. So then, brethren, once again, he calls them brethren. He says, stand firm, underline stand firm, and hold to the traditions of, which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Word of mouth or by letter from us. So Paul says, based upon everything that I've just told you, here's what I want you to do. And I want you to write this down. He says, I want you to stand firm and do what you know. Stand firm and do what you know. One of the things that you find as you travel through the New Testament and Paul's writings, one of his favorite phrases to believers is simply the phrase, stand firm, stand firm. There in your outline in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Just, just stand firm. Uh, and the reason that Paul says this is that because this chapter begins with a prophecy about the last days. The last days, Paul says, there will come a great apostasy, that many will fall away from the faith, true biblical faith, and they'll buy into every other belief system, and many of those people will still be coming to church, but they just don't hold to the biblical faith. It'd be that great apostasy. So Paul says, you need to make sure that you stand firm. So whatever anybody else does, you you need to make sure that you are standing firm because there will be forces around us that will constantly try to take us away from what the Bible says is true. So Paul says, stand firm. So what do you do? You stick with the the tradition handed down by Paul. Notice verse 15. He says, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or mouth or by letter from us. Hold to the traditions that you were taught. Now, what I love about this is that Paul's only in Thessalonica for three weeks. So in three weeks, he lays down a couple of traditions that he taught them, and those are the traditions that they're to follow. So, so what are the traditions that he laid down? We're going to find that there's two traditions specifically. The first tradition, I want you to write this down, is simply stick to the Bible. You remember that when Paul came to Thessalonica, they didn't have a strong biblical background. The church is mostly Gentile in their, in their background, so they, they didn't really understand a great deal about the Old Testament, the Bible in the, those days. But Paul just says, they came to Thessalonica, or in Acts it says, they came to Thessalonica, there in your outline, and Paul, as his manner, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the, and what's it say? Scriptures. Paul always starts with the Scriptures. And the reason being is that 
Paul believed in the power of God's word to change people's lives. So he starts with this. That's a tradition. Don't deviate from that. Then Paul goes on and he says, as we wrap up chapter 2, in verse 16 and 17, he begins to just write a prayer for them. And he says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort, eternal comfort and good hope and by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Now, the interesting thing about that prayer is that this church is going through a very intense time of persecution. And so when Paul prays this prayer for them, you notice that Paul doesn't pray that they're removed from the the persecution or the difficulty. He just prays that God gives them what they need to be strong and to stand firm in the midst of it. And what we find is that God has a way of using difficulty in our lives to to grow us deeper in him. We'll talk about that in just a couple of moments. Chapter three, chapter three. Everybody ready? So Paul says, as we live out this lifetime in the, the last days, we need to stand firm, hold to the traditions. And then he says, finally, brethren, pray for us. And I want you to underline the word us, that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. Now, when Paul says, pray for us, what he's saying, and you want to write this down, and I want you to practice it, he's saying, pray for the preacher. Pray for us. That's what he's saying. Pray for us. So write that down. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. There's a couple of things in this as we move through this chapter in the last days I want to talk about. And, and one of them is this. You, you notice that Paul's heart is that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly. Did we all see that? It's God's heart that God's word would spread rapidly, that this message would continue. And, and yet, um, Paul's warning in chapter 2 is that in the last days there would come a great apostasy, a great apostasy. So Paul says, so we need to be praying that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly. Now, here's why I want to say this, and and, and I'm saying this to everybody because I could never have this conversation with any of us privately one-on-one. It's easier for me to just say it it to a group. Okay, you ready? (laughs) Guys, one of the most disheartening things as a pastor is when somebody comes up and says, I just love the fact that our church has always stayed small. Um, for a pastor, you, you don't typically do this um, for the glory. I never knew how mad I could make people until I became a pastor. I just faithfully tried to teach God's word, love my wife and love my kids. But I, I, I remember a few years ago, we changed communion, how we did it. I thought people were going to kill me. And, and what, what I've learned through the years is I don't do this for uh, the money. There, there's a lot better ways to make money. I do this because I so believe that people need to, to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And for believers, there's nothing more important than you actually really knowing what the Bible, what it really says. Because I think you can go a lot of places and they'll refer to it, but you won't know what it really says. And I think there's nothing more important. But what happens, what happens along the way 
is that we as believers all of a sudden come to the place and we say, you know, I think, I think we've reached enough and, and we don't really want to reach anymore. And we all like that some church changed in order to reach us. But many times we get frustrated when our church changes to reach other people. And you want to make sure that you don't find yourself praying against the prayer request of the Apostle Paul, who said, please, let's pray that the word of the Lord would spread, not just spread, but it would spread rapidly, rapidly. And, and there are times when, when we learn, I don't know if you know this, but, but our church, as far as churches in America, we are in the top 5% of churches, both numerically and financially. But I look at our church and I go, that's all well and good. But the truth is, we live in an area where thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people have absolutely no relationship with God. You want to make sure that you are a biblical Christian, a biblical Christian who is praying that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified. And don't let Satan bring any other lie to your mind. You with me? So pray for your preacher. Paul says, pray for us. And I want you to pray that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly. We were very blessed this past Friday night when um, we had 48 people at the membership class and, and just over 30 of them said, yes, we want to make this our church home. That's just this month. And so God is bringing people to this church and we're very thankful for that. So it, it's exciting to see what the Lord is, is doing. Now, another thing that I would say is that the Bible teaches, John wrote this there in your outline. John says, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. That is, if we're praying what God wants us to pray for, we can have confidence that God's going to answer that question or, or that prayer request. When we pray that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly, we, we can confidently believe that God's going to do that because that's what God wants to do. That's what God wants to do. So make sure that you are praying in the will of God and allowing God to do that as opposed to finding yourself emotionally or uh, praying uh, contrary to those things. So he says, pray, pray for the preacher, pray for us. Then Paul gives a second prayer request in this, and he says, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith, for not all have faith. And uh, that, that's his uh, prayer request. Let's go to, I'm going to read verses two and three, because Paul says, you know, the, the big thing is that I need to be rescued from perverse and evil men. Now, Wearsby in his commentary, every commentary points to this and says something like, um, like in Wearsby's commentary, he just says, the evil one enjoys using Christian believers to oppose the work of God. Not, nothing that Satan loves more than using people who profess to be believers who oppose the work of God. Um, the, verses two and three. Here, remember, this church is going through a very difficult time. He says that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But then he says, underline this, but the Lord is faithful. Underline that. The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Now, a couple of things you notice. First of all, verse 2, that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. And he says, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. 
So you, you have this, this uh, paragraph where Paul is praying, and in the midst of this paragraph, he says, but the Lord is faithful. Faithful to do what? Is, is the Lord faithful to answer all of our wants and desires? What, is, what does it say he's faithful to do? Well, go ahead and write this down. He says he's faithful, verse 3. He says, he will strengthen, the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So, in the midst of difficulty, the Lord is faithful not to remove us, but to strengthen us and protect us. The, the, the idea is that, that God has a way of not removing us from the difficulty, but strengthening us in the difficulty. And for many of us as believers, our, our prayer, and certainly mine, would be to remove us from the difficulty or the persecution that we, we face. But the Bible doesn't say that he removes us from that. It says that he strengthens us in the midst of that. Paul begins and he says, protect us from evil and perverse men. Then he closes that and says that the Lord is faithful to protect you from the evil one. The idea that Paul is conveying is that those evil and perverse men are being directed by an entity that is behind them. Evil and perverse men, for not all have faith, not everybody who claims to be a believer is, and they are being directed by an entity behind them. So, so Paul talks about that. It just, the, the, Paul doesn't pray that we're removed from the difficulty. And so Paul says, so, so guys, I know you're doubting because you're going through a difficult time, but, verse 4, he says, I want you to know, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Now, I want you to underline that word command, because we'll come back to that later on. You're, you're, doing, you're, you're doing and will do what, what uh, we command. Verse 5, he says, now, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So, in, in your difficulty, he says, I'm praying that the Lord will direct you into the steadfastness of Christ. Now, how many of your Bibles say something like the patient waiting? Okay, that, that's the most accurate translation. The patient waiting. The idea is that you're going through a difficult time. You're not being removed from that. I'm praying that you're strengthened in that. But, but my prayer is that as you go through this difficult time, you're going to come to that steadfastness in your walk and that patient waiting, which means that we want to be there, but we're still here. We'd like him to fix it, but we're going to have to walk through it. Now, here's the beauty of difficulty. This is the beauty of, of pain and, and just the things that we walk through. It has a way of revealing the truth of our commitment to Christ and the truth of whether we were actually born again or not. I want to show you a, a verse on the screen, Matthew's gospel, Jesus is teaching, and Jesus says this, now the one whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with great joy. You know, very excited. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. You ever seen somebody like that? Great excitement. More than three months later. And it says, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now what does that mean? What it means is simply this. Paul says, if you're really a believer, 
and you go through a difficult time, God's going to bring you to that place of steadfastness. You're going to walk through it, but there's something about Jesus you can't walk away from. You, you, can't, you just can't walk away. And uh, many, many believers we've seen walk through some very difficult times. This entire church is walking through a difficult time. The, the evidence that they really are believers is that in the midst of this great difficulty, they're not leaving. They're, they're still walking with the Lord. Some are being crucified, and they can't walk away. But... The Lord has a way when somebody makes this joyful commitment that's not really true. It's an emotional commitment of bringing a little bit of persecution or an affliction or the Bible says, hey, do this. And they go, I'm not doing that. I don't care what the Bible says. And all of a sudden they leave and it reveals the truth as to whether the conversion was real or not. You see, the the very fact that you've walked through difficulty and you've walked with the Lord as opposed to walking away from the Lord is the evidence that you really were converted. Because as if you weren't really converted and you walked through difficulty, you're not going to do that with the Lord. That makes sense? And many, many people believe that they're converted, they receive with joy, but as soon as there's a problem, they're gone. They've not been converted. There's no steadfastness that they're being led into in Christ. So far, so good? Now, speaking of commands, and we just had you underline that word command. In verse 6, he says, now we command you, once again, underline that word command, you brethren, we're talking to believers here, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, whatever Paul's going to say, he's using what's called the full confessional name of, of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't just say the Lord or Jesus or Christ, it's the Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from every brother who leads, and my Bible, it says unruly life. Now, underline that, unruly life. I know some of your Bibles will say disorderly or idle, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And not according to the tradition, we're going to find tradition number two, the tradition which you received from us. So let me just read that again. Now, we command you. So we look at that word command. Is this a suggestion? It's a command. Okay, now how many of you think you have a biblical faith? Well, let's find out. Now this we command you. This, this is one of the big ones, okay? This is not a suggestion. Uh, you brethren, you're believers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, apparently it's pretty serious, that you keep away from every brother, we're not gonna doubt that they're saved, but every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Here's what Paul's saying. And you want to write this down. Paul commands that we separate from Christians who lead unruly lives. We separate from Christians who lead unruly lives. Uh, he, that there is, um, he, he commands that we withdraw, and this is not a suggestion. In the church, we are very quickly... Um, we're very quick to protest the world for acting like the world. Uh, we sign petitions against the gay agenda. Uh, we fight abortion, you know, all of these things. And man, we are hopping mad, aren't we? Um, but the person sitting next to you is sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They're living, with their, they're living in sin. They're doing all types of things. Um, does that bother you? Now, now here, here, here's why this is so important. Paul says... He commands us within the church to step away from people who profess to be believers who aren't acting like it. 
And, and yet in the church today, we're very quick to protest the world for acting like the world. And, and yet we say nothing to believers who are within the church who are living like the world. And uh, Paul says we're doing it exactly opposite. Make sense so far? Okay. So uh, interesting, and he, again, he uses the full confessional title, which, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he throws all of that in there. He doesn't always do that. Now, what's also interesting in this is that if you have the King James Version Bible, it will say who lives a disorderly life. Um, my Bible says unruly. And if you have the NIV, don't raise your hands on this, but it says idle, idle. Now, here, here's the thing what, what happens is that um, all commentators will tell you that idle is the absolute worst translation of this word. Uh, and, and here's why. Um, the word there in the original language is ataktos. It's an adverb, and I put it on your outline, and you notice it says from New Testament 813, and we'll talk about that in a moment. It means irregularly, uh, morally. You're, you're kind of irregular in a moral sense. Um, that's from Strong's. Now, Thayer's Bible Dictionary, translated as, uh, means to be disorderly, but it's from another word. You know, like you have the word running, and that word is from run, and so some, some words are from other words in the New Testament. This word comes from another word, which sounds exactly alike, which is just ataktos, which means unarranged or insubordinate religiously, insubordinate religiously. And uh, again, all commentators say that the word uh, idol is, is the worst translation of this, this word. Even in the NIV commentary, it says that. Because when somebody's idle, it means that they're not doing something that they're supposed to be doing. You, you, you've given your kids a chore to do. They're not doing that. They're just idle. And so we, we all get that. But that's not what this word means. This word implies that not only are they not doing what they're supposed to be doing, but right now they're actively involved in doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. So it's not just that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're actively doing something they're not supposed to be doing. So it's more than just being idle. With me so far? Okay, you're looking at me like a lobster's coming out of my ears. So, so that's the idea of this word. And, and so what is the tradition that Paul is going to talk about? I love this, and I want you to write this down. Specifically, the tradition that Paul is going to be talking about here is the tradition of simply go to work. Go to work. It's, it's interesting to me when, when you look at this, and we'll unpack this as we go, but I wanted to give you the punchline up front. Paul was in Thessalonica, and he's only there for three weeks, there for three weeks, and he teaches all of the major doctrines that they needed to know, and uh, you'll recall that he talks about salvation, this is what it means to be a Christian, he talks about eschatology, we know that because he's got to clarify that a couple of times, and he talks about the, uh, just the basic Christian outlook on life, and uh, part of that outlook on life that Paul needed to live out for them is just the outlook that believers work. Believers go to work. It's just what they do. Now, Paul shows up for three weeks. He's there in Thessalonica, and, and he goes and he begins to just work there among them so that he could be an example to them so that they could see this is just what you do. And they got to see Paul as he went to work. They got to see Paul as he interacted with non-believers on the job. How many of you ever heard somebody say, I wish I could come work at the church just so I could just be around other believers? But Paul went out into the world and he worked so that, so that he could interact with non-believers. So, um, and by, you know, it, it is interesting when you think about work in the Bible that how many people God 
chose to use, and he called them while they were at work. You have Moses, who's shepherding sheep, and God says, I want you to do something. You have Joshua, who's his servant, that God taps on his shoulder and says, let's go do something. You have David, and he's shepherding the sheep, and God says, I want you to become now the king. You have Jesus, and he's walking along, and he sees some guys who are fishing. He says, all right, you, you need to come. God always has a way of choosing people who are working. Jesus was a carpenter, and Paul's a tent maker. So, so we see that. Now, in verse 6, he says, now we command you, brethren, and so he never questions that these people who apparently are not working, he, he never questions whether or not they are believers, it's just that they're, they're involved in something here that they shouldn't be involved in. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. The tradition specifically is going to be going to work. Verse 7, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an, what, however your Bible says it. My Bible says undisciplined. Some of your Bibles might say unruly or idle. However it says it, underline that word. We did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Just to let you know that that word in verse 7 is the same word in verse 6 for unruly, disorderly, however your Bible translates it. So verse 8, he says, nor, they're only there three weeks, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Now, this is interesting because Paul says, I'm, he shows up, he's just had a Roman beating two days before, he shows, to, shows up there, and uh, later on, as Paul leaves Philippi to come to Thessalonica, later on, he's going to write a letter back to Philippi, the church that he was at just before Thessalonica. To that church, he says this, he writes to the Philippians and he says, even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Paul was in Thessalonica for three weeks. Now, why is that so important? While Paul was in Thessalonica, this church, Philippi, sends a gift more than once to Paul as he's ministering in Thessalonica. The journey is a two-day journey from Philippi to Thessalonica. If you're sending a gift that takes two days to walk to, to deliver, you're not sending 50 bucks. Do you agree? You'd say, we'll just get it to him another time. This is apparently a very significant gift that would be in the, in the thousands of dollars. So here's Paul, and in Philippi, two days before he arrives in Thessalonica, he receives this Roman beating. He's permanently disfigured, he's scabbing over, and he looks out over, over this community, and he realizes that there's something that they need to see me do. And the thing that they need to see him do is simply to go out and get a job. Now, I want you to write this down because uh, the, um, understanding why Paul did this. In Thessalonica, Paul worked not because he needed the money, but they needed the example. Because in their Greek culture, they disdained things like manual labor. So, so they, they felt we have servants to do that. We don't do that. Paul looks on, and because the Bible teaches that work is a value, Paul says, you guys need to see me work, even though I'm scabbed over, I'm beat up. So for the three weeks that he was there, he just goes out and begins to work. Verses 8 through 10, he says, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. 
not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example, so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing, you have to underline the word willing to work, he is not to eat either. Verse 9, he says, he says, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you. The, the idea is that we know that gifts were sent from Philippi to Paul. He didn't need the money, but they needed to see that working out. Apparently it was an issue with the Thessalonica church. But here's what he's teaching. And I want you to write this down. Christians are to be self-supporting. Christians are to be self-supporting. The key word in verse 10 is just simply the word willing. The idea is that deliberate loafers are not supported. Here at Calvary, one of the things that we do is, as many of you know, we set aside at least 10% of our budget, which goes to, towards missions and benevolence. Now, at the end of the year, it's typically a great deal more than 10%. And sometimes somebody will come in and they'll, they'll have this particular need and, and uh, we'll ask a couple of questions. I'm not really involved in, in this anymore. Uh, uh, Pastor Ken does that and TJ. And um, they'll come in, they'll sit down, they'll say, well, we have this need. And um, at Calvary Fort Lauderdale, somebody would come in and they would say something like, um, you know, if you don't help me out, I'm going to be living under a bridge tonight. You know, and somebody who's up, they, they no connection with the church. And uh, you know, if you don't help me, I'm going to be living under a bridge. To which the benevolence team would often say, well, sometimes living under a bridge for a while is the best thing that could happen to you. And that was very shocking to me at first. Because what we found out was that if somebody shows up at the church and we don't know them and they're showing up here for help, usually it means that they've lived a life in such a way that they've burned every bridge possible. Nobody in their world will have anything to do with them anymore, so they show up at the church. And so the the response is like, well, sometimes living under a bridge is not a bad thing because you live under a bridge for a few days, you look at your life and you say, I need to make some changes. And, And so they would do that. On the other hand, there are times when you see that there are people, it's not that they're not willing, they, they're just right now they can't find the work, they're doing everything they can, they're, they're trying to make ends meet, and so our church will step in and show up and, and help and take care. And we've paid electric bills, we've paid, what times we've paid mortgage payment, rent, pay, rent payments, you know, whatever it is, we, it doesn't happen all the time, but if somebody's making the effort, we do that. If somebody's not willing to work, then our general response is, well, sometimes living under a bridge is a good thing. So I expect to see a line of people there at the, the end of the, today. So just to let you know where, where we're at. But Christians are to be self-supporting. And the key word is willing. At Calvary Fort Lauderdale, when I first went there, for many of you know the story that my dad was in prison and, and um, had custody of my younger sister. And it was a very difficult time in, in every way, emotionally, spiritually, financially. And uh, when I went to work there, they put me under a man named John Cinelli. John Cinelli is a member of our board of directors. John Cinelli, before becoming a pastor at Calvary Fort Lauderdale, had built the largest real estate agency in, in all, of, of all of Fort Lauderdale. And John, prior to coming on staff at Calvary, went through a difficult time financially where there, there was no work. He had left a ministry and, and uh, had that kind of time period where there was no income. And so John, being the type of workhorse that he is, went to a Dunkin' Donuts where at every night at 11 o'clock at night, they locked the door, locked him in, and he cleaned the Dunkin' Donuts until the morning when they came in, every single night. 
Very humbling for a guy who built the largest real estate company in Fort Lauderdale. Very humbling, but a very deep work ethic. As believers, we're called to have a very strong work ethic. We're to be the people who are just known for getting the job done. Does that make sense? Sadly, in the business world, that's not always the case. That's not always the case. Well, let's move on. Verse 11, he says, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So Paul's been keeping in touch with this church. And uh, there's a word play in this verse. I just want to show it to you. And he says, For we hear that some of you are leading an undisciplined, that's that word that we've been looking at, attack, attack coast, uh, undisciplined life, doing no work, that word there, ergozomai, probably mispronounced that at all, but acting like busy bodies, which is perioagozomai, which is just a word play. So they're not working, but they're acting like busy bodies. Now, a busy body in, in the original language just means uh, to work around, means to bustle about or meddle, just to meddle. Apparently in this church, there were people who felt that the rapture was so close that they just quit their jobs. They quit their jobs and just started sponging off the rest of the people in the church. And they had what many of us have been accused of, of having rapture-itis. You know, you're just kind of waiting for the rapture. And, and Paul is, is confronting that belief system. Have you heard of rapture-itis? You, know, you, you might be accused of that at some time. And what they're doing is they're not taking care of business for themselves, but now they have too much time on their hand and so now they're acting like busybodies, and the idea is now they're getting into everybody else's business. You ever known somebody who gets in everybody else's business? Can I tell you that one of the great benefits of having a full-time job and 12 kids at home, I have no time to get in anybody's business whatsoever. <laughs> Do you agree? And, and sometimes too much free time leads people into being just busybodies in everybody else's business. And so Paul says, you're acting like busybodies. Not only that, but now they're becoming a burden on those who kept working. They've quit working and they're sponging off of everybody else. So um, interesting on this word busybody, Paul wrote to Timothy and he gave a little bit more information on it. Paul said, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. A few verses back, we talked about that verse, that word disorderly, unruly. Uh, we talked about the word idle. Idleness is when you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, but that's not the word. Here, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They have so much free time on their hands, which leads them into doing what they're not supposed to be doing. So not only are they not working, but now they're just sitting around and they're, you know, gossiping and talking about stuff that, you know, is it, and Paul's saying, you need to guys just need to go get a job. So here's what you're to do. Now, for those of you, he says, by the way, that makes sense so far? So here, Paul says, so here's what I want you to do. Verse 12 he says, you need to stop this busybody stuff and idle time. He says, now to such persons, we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, once again, to work in quiet fashion and eat your own bread. That is, get up and, and go support yourself. 
Um, interesting, that word quiet fashion is an interesting word because it means uh, doing his own work and not uh, officiously meddle with the affairs of others. It's not just that you're not talking, it's that you're no longer meddling in the affairs of other people. And so people who had too much time on their hands were just meddling in other people. So Paul is saying, and I want you to write this down, Paul says, work and mind your own business. Eat your own bread and support yourself. Then verse 13, he says, now for the rest of you who are working, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Do not grow weary of doing good. Um, you're not being busybodies. Um, you're, you're, you're not being busybodies. You're working. Don't grow weary. Don't be frustrated with that group. Just keep going. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not, well, my Bible says associate. Does your Bible say something like that? Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. So, so once again, we're, we're quick to protest the world, but we, we really need to stay at, at first and start with the church. Verse 15 says, Yet do not regard him as an enemy, still a brother, but admonish him as a brother. We are not hanging out until this stops in your life. Verse 16 and 17. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance, the Lord be with you all. And then at this point, in verse 17, Paul takes the pen from whoever is writing this. Paul had a secretary. He takes the pen and Paul starts writing the last two verses. And he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is important because there's a letter going around that's a forgery. And Paul says, I want you to see my signature at the end of this letter. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. There's my signature. This is the way I write. And then Paul does one other thing that is a distinguishing feature in all of his letters, apparently not in the forgery that was going around. Verse 18, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Apparently that was not part of that forgery that was going around. And there you have it, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Was it interesting? Okay, you feel like going out and getting a job now? <laughs> Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and just the way that you apply it. And Lord, we look at this and we realize that we can be as Christians so quick to go and protest the world. And, and yet, Lord, those who would be believers among us leading an unruly life, many times we say nothing. And we flip what your word says to do. And, and yet many times we still think we're biblical Christians. Father, I pray, first of all, that, that you would help us to be not jerks for Jesus, but you'd help us to appropriately make sure that within the body of Christ, all of us are leading lives that represent you. And we pray, God, that your light would so shine in us and through us as we live out your message in the world in which we live. I pray for each and every person who's here today that you would keep us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.